Thank you so much, Elder Wingpo, for leading us in service and for reading that rather long passage. And thank you for your patience as well. Well, uh, good morning, everyone. I ask you to keep your Bibles open to John chapter 7. Uh, and for those of you who find it helpful usually to follow a sermon using an outline, there is one on the e-bulletin. So you can download that, go to the ARPC website, then go down, scroll down to the bulletin. Now, would you please uh, join me in prayer? Lord, indeed, to whom shall we go when you alone have the words of eternal life? So please help us now to hear and to obey what you say to us today. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. I wonder if uh, recently you've been following this news. This uh, teenager, Zoe Gabriel, she was mocked on social media uh, in January for calling our homegrown brand, uh, fashion brand, Charles and Keith, a luxury brand. I don't know how many of you watched this, this video in which she gave a very sincere uh, and yet and also eloquent online response. Anyone watched it? I see, I see some heads nodding. Okay. So this response drew praise from many, but it also invited more hatred for her. So let me ask you now, is Charles and Keith a luxury brand? I'm sure even among many of us here, there will be differing views. There'll be, there'll be divided opinions. Okay. Let, do you know that back in 2011, Louis Vuitton or LVMH once invested for a 20% stake in Charles and Keith? You didn't know that, right? So maybe that's another reason why uh, we can call it a luxury brand. Okay, but the answer is still in the wind. What are some other issues that invite divided opinions? Well, in the US, it may be gun control versus Second Amendment rights, the rights to bear arms. Uh, perhaps it could be abortion versus the pro-life movement, and so on. Indeed, there are many issues that divide people sharply, often along political lines and even splitting up families and churches in the US. How about Singapore? Remember, in the early days of the pandemic, many people had divided opinions. Should we mask up or not? Okay. And uh, especially on public transport, should we mask up? Until the official health directive came down, right? And everyone no choice, mask up or get fined. But even then, there were many who disputed on our public transport system. They don't want to put on their masks. And uh, we've been following news on that. Okay. In churches as well, do you recall we were deciding whether to cancel services and to move it online to cancel children's church? Uh, or should we just soldier on regardless? Well, ARPC was one of the first to suspend services in middle of March 2020. I'm not sure if you recall the murmurs on the ground at that time. It's not too far away from, from us actually, it's just barely three years, right? Uh, well, it was only when the circuit breaker was imposed on the 7th of April 2020 that all our doubts were quilled, all our deliberations ceased. See, for our good, the government asserted its authority to squash all dissent, to, to cease all deliberations. And all but the most recalcitrant summited to in our actions, if not in our hearts. 
Okay, of course, they cannot control our hearts. Uh, we can still continue to murmur. Well, the Lord Jesus also divided opinions, both in his days on earth as well as now. John 7 outlines for us three questions or divided opinions that people had about Jesus. Uh, in, on his attendance at the feast, their question was, will he go or not? On his authority to heal and to teach, can he or can he not? On his origin and destination, where does he come from and where does he go to? But finally, John 7 ends with a question that is posed to us. Jesus offers us living water. Will you and I come or not to drink from him? So firstly, let's take a look at the first one. Jesus' attendance at the feast. Will he or will he not go? Uh, we read in verse 1, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. See, after the Lord had healed the invalid in John 5, the Jewish religious leaders intensified their attempts to kill him. Chapter 5, verse 18 tells us, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This persecution is perhaps why the Lord has left Judea for Galilee. He knows that it is not yet the hour for his death, so he withdrew to a bit far off, right, to Galilee, to get away from the religious leaders. But the Lord continues to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate the various Jewish feasts. Now it's time for another trip, because we are told, now the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. Now, the background to this Feast of Booths, or Feast of Tabernacles, is found in Leviticus chapter 23. So can you please uh, read this along with me, starting from verse 39? On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths, when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. Every, every year, or not on the, the 15th day of the seventh month, but on the 15th day of the second month in February, right, Singapore observes Total Defense Day. Anyone knows that? What is that? Right? We only know that the alarm rings, but what is that? Well, at least students in schools, as well as in our military uh, organizations, they celebrate it, right? Well, this is this year's campaign poster. This day marks the fall of Singapore to the Japanese in 1942. It's to remind each generation, each new generation of our part to defend Singapore. Similarly, this Feast of Booths, or Sukkoth in the Hebrew, is an annual harvest. It's a harvest celebration, thanking God for the harvest. But it, it, it lasts eight days. And the Jews are supposed to live in huts made of branches, something like this, for the first seven days. And why is that so? Is it glamping? No, it's not for fun. 
Well, it's to remind each generation of God's rescue of His people, the nation of Israel from Egypt. It's to recall those days in the wilderness when their ancestors had to dwell in tents. Well, since this is such an important Jewish festival, all devout Jews are expected or they, they delight in going up to Jerusalem for this feast. And that is why in verse 3, we read, So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. See, Jesus' brothers were urging him to leave obscure Galilee and go to populous Judea, where the crowds are being gathered for the feast, and then he can do his signs there publicly to the world. It seems as if they were concerned for him. Perhaps they had heard recently that what we read in chapter 6, verse 66, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, and so they were concerned. But John now tells us the true reason they were saying this, and that is, for not even his brothers believed in him, his own brothers. Well, sometimes we find it hard to believe it, to accept, when a close family member tells us that they're going to do something amazing, something important. Just as Joseph's brother did not believe him, when he spoke about his dreams, right? We ask, we are from the same family, same background. What makes you think that you're better than us? Perhaps Jesus' brothers were jealous because they had been told from young that their elder brother was going to achieve something great. And so their words here should probably be read with a mocking tone. And perhaps that's why the Lord's reply to them is such a sharp, such a stern rebuke. In verse 6, Jesus said to them, let's read this together, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet come fully come. See, Jesus' brothers had just asked Jesus to go and show himself to the world. But the Lord says that his brothers belong to this world because of their disbelief. And that is why the world that dwells in darkness hates Jesus. He's the light, and they hate him. Here, Jesus' time, the word time here translates kairos in the Greek, which means appointed time. In this context, Jesus is talking about God's appointed time for him to go up to Jerusalem. It's a different word from the word that is usually used to refer to Jesus' hour, hora. Okay? And in John's gospel, hora usually refers to his death, resurrection, and ascension, when Jesus is lifted up in glory. So what's the difference between the two? Let's try to explain this. Huh? Let's say you have a dreaded major exam tomorrow or, or a crucial business meeting, and that would be your hour, okay, your hour. Your appointed time could be the alarm that you set on your phone or on your clock. But imagine someone wakes you up before it's time, before it's your appointed time. 
So he said, it is not my time yet. Likewise, Jesus' refusal to go up to Jerusalem with his brothers is not a lie. Because he, although he does later go up with them, he's just saying that his alarm clock hasn't gone off. Okay, it is not yet time. It's not yet his appointed time to go. And we continue to read in verse 9, After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. See, the Lord is intentional. He's following his father's will down to the last detail. He's not going to follow his mother's will in chapter 2 or his brother's desires here. Jesus submits fully to his father's authority and he goes at just the right time. He also goes privately and incognito at first, rather than publicly and with much fanfare, as his brother suggested. And we shall see uh, why very soon. It's because of this cautious secrecy of his that the Jews were looking for Jesus at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. See, there are two distinct groups of people here. The Jews here are distinct from the people. And the Jews here likely refer to the Jewish leaders who have been trying to kill Jesus. The people, on the other hand, they had divided opinions about Jesus. Some think that he's good, others that he's a bad influence. But there is an awkward silence at the feast, a tense atmosphere in Jerusalem for fear of the Jewish authorities. Now it is worth pondering at this point, right, whose authority do you and I submit to? Whom do we fear? When push comes to shove, will we choose to obey God rather than man? And so we've looked at the question of Jesus' attendance at the feast, wondering, will he go or will he not? Now let's take a look at the next point, the Jewish leader's question about Jesus' authority to teach and to heal. Can he or can he not? In verse 14, let's read these verses together. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So, oh, sorry. That's it, okay. So we now see the reason why Jesus chose to come up to Jerusalem in private. It's not because the congregation tends to arrive late to the feast, as we are sometimes late for service. That's a gentle reminder. So the preacher chose to come late as well, right? That's not the reason. I'm sure the Jews actually would arrive very early for the feast so that they can good, get a good spot right, for, to set up their booths. And I also can comment that there were around 50% of you who actually came on time for service. So well done. Well, more likely, Jesus knew that if he had gone up with the pilgrims who were coming up for the feast, that there would be a commotion as what happened on Palm Sunday. And this would alarm the Jewish authorities it would derail his plans to teach in the temple. In the words of Professor D.A. Carson, the focus of Jesus' concern was not privacy, 
but obedience to his father. Then midway through this eight-day feast of booths, Jesus then enters the temple. So he's been beating his time, and now he enters the temple and starts teaching. The Jewish leaders then questioned Jesus' authority to teach because they saw him as an outsider. See, most Jewish leaders went to the same schools, either to the house of Helia or the house of Shammai. It's a bit like the ACS and RI of today, or the, for the girls, the MGS and RGS. In those days, those are the schools. The rest are lousy schools. Okay? Of course, that, question, that last statement is not true. I'm not from any of those schools, by the way. But how do these proud Jewish leaders, this is how the, the Jewish leaders perceive it uh, in those days. Okay? In fact, Kuo is a good school, right? Because the fifth company is here, I must say. Kuo is a good school. Right? <laughs> and a lot of schools, as our ministers say, every school is a good school. Uh. Moreover, these teachers... They, what they do is they tend to appeal to the earlier rabbinical teachings and their instruction. So it's a bit like how I demonstrated, I quoted Professor Carson, right? Because he, he has the title Professor, right? So you believe me. Okay? That's how they did it as well. But the Lord Jesus wasn't doing so. And so they may have interpreted this as arrogance or perhaps as ignorance. He doesn't know all these teachers, well, how does the Lord respond to this accusation? In verse 16, Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sends me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own, his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sends him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. The Lord's defense of himself is very simple. He says his teaching is not just his own, but it comes from God. And he seeks not his own glory, but God's glory. And therefore, those who delight to do God's will, they will recognize that Jesus' authority comes from God. Okay, so it's very simple. And then the Lord then goes on to address another unresolved issue the Jewish leaders had with him. In verse 19, he asked them, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? So here Jesus addresses one of the reasons they were trying to kill him in the first place. The one work they are all marveling at refers to Jesus' healing of the invalid on the Sabbath in John chapter 5. And Jesus was defending this healing by noting how the, the Jewish leaders themselves allow for circumcision of a newborn baby boy on the eighth day, even if that eighth day should fall on the Sabbath. See, to the Jews, circumcision is the perfecting of a body part by the removal of the foreskin, and therefore it surpasses the Sabbath law. Well, Jesus reasons that his perfecting of the whole person, his healing, 
far surpasses the Sabbath as well. Moreover, his healing was pointing forward to the fulfillment of God's end-time rest and restoration, which the Sabbath was foreshadowing. Then Jesus turns the table now on the Jewish leaders and he indicts them, he charges them that none of them is really keeping the law of Moses because they are trying to kill him. He is the one Moses spoke of. Now, I wonder if you've seen this series by Rowan Atkinson, Man vs. Bee. In, in this movie, uh, or this series, Atkinson plays Trevor, who burns down a, a luxurious mansion that he was house-sitting in his overzealous attempt to get rid of this irritating bee, this little bee. Talk about extreme measures, overkill. Well, in the same way, in their haste to, de to defend the Sabbath law, the Jewish leaders have missed the very person the whole law points to, the Son of God. And Jesus may also be implying here that they are breaking the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, because they were trying to kill him, an innocent man. The Jewish leaders challenged Jesus' authority to teach and heal by asking, can he or can he not? But Jesus has answered he has addressed the source of his authority and he has shown that they are the ones who are the transgressors because they have not recognized Jesus' divine authority. They have tried to kill the Son of God. And now it is time for the people to ask a question. And the people will ask about Jesus' origin and destination. Where does he come from and where does he go to? Verse 25, let's read these verses together. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. See, to unpack this a bit, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, these are the, the people of Jerusalem, those who stay in Jerusalem, they knew that their leaders are trying to kill Jesus, whereas those from outside may not know. And so they are very surprised that he's able to teach so openly in the temple and no one was stopping him. Could it be that the authorities really recognize Jesus to be the Christ? They're wondering. But they think that they know better than their leaders because they presumed to know Jesus' origin. They knew that he came from backward Nazareth. He now lives in obscure Galilee, uh, in Capernaum. But this is really incomplete knowledge, because the crowd did not know that Jesus was really born in the city of David, Bethlehem. Perhaps if they had known that, they might change their minds. There was also a widespread misbelief that when the Christ comes, his origin will be unknown until he appears to save the nation. Now, perhaps you and I are like them. Perhaps we have certain misinformation or incomplete knowledge about Jesus that's hindering us from fully trusting him as our Lord. Perhaps we have been disappointed by Jesus in the past because he didn't meet our expectations. He didn't give us that job or that partner or he didn't uh, help us with our health. And so we think that we know better now. 
but perhaps we do not. And may the Lord deal with our ignorance, our arrogance, and lead us to his saving knowledge. So to answer their question about his origin, in verse 28, Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Now, the first line, the words in yellow, Jesus wasn't affirming their knowledge. He was saying something like this, You think you know me and my origin. No, you don't. Let me ask you, do you know your origin? Well, according to my birth certificate, I found that I was born in Kandang Kerbau Hospital, KKH, the old name, right? My home address at that time was along Jalan Tiga Ratus. So I, I, I wasn't sure what it looked like because I moved when I was less than two years old. I went to do this online search recently to look at what my first home looks like right now. That's, I think, is there a slide? Okay, so this is what it looks like from Google Street View. Huh? It's completely transformed from the old farm village that it was 45 years ago. But the Lord Jesus doesn't, know, doesn't need to use Google Street View. He doesn't need a birth certificate to tell him his origin. John already told us this in chapter 1, verse 18, that Jesus was the only God who is at the Father's side. Jesus knows his Father. The true God has sent him. But the people don't know God. And the reason is because they don't acknowledge that Jesus has come from God. Again, the people do have divided opinions on Jesus. And so we see in verse 30, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So the first group there who were seeking to arrest Jesus are likely the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They now join in their leaders' efforts to arrest him. But Jesus escapes because his hour is not yet. But many, the others from outside of Jerusalem, actually believe that he is the Christ because they've seen the signs that he's been doing. In verse 32, sorry, I don't have a slide for this. I forgot some slides. So in verse 32, bear with me, or you refer to in our Bibles as I read. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Here we see the Pharisees, they become alarmed because of this latest commotion over Jesus. So they send temple guards or officers to arrest him. And that's when Jesus starts to talk about his destination. Since they're going to arrest him, immediately he comes to mind, where is he going? His destination, he says, is the same as his origin. It's to the one who sent him. There, Jesus will be elusive to those who seek his life. But the Jewish leaders have misunderstood Jesus once again. In verse 35, the Jews say to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, 
and where I am, you cannot come. See, the leaders think that Jesus is going to leave Judea and is going to teach the diaspora Jews who are living under Hellenistic influence among the Greeks, speaking Greek and adopting Greek names. And that is us, right? How many of us here have English names? You see a show of hands? Just do a survey. Uh, I don't, so I should. Okay. Actually, not too bad. Okay, so we, we, we have English names and we perhaps speak English more and even better than our mother tongues. So we are like diaspora. Okay? Diaspora Jews live in places that the religious Jews wouldn't venture into. And perhaps that's why they think that Jesus is going there to escape from them. Well, Jesus now has addressed his origin and destination. He, he really means that he's going back to his father's side where he comes from and where he's going is the same. Actually, the answer to all three questions that we've asked so far is God. Okay? So the question, will Jesus go to the feast or not? Answer, God is the one who determines his appointed time. Second question is, does Jesus have authority to teach and to heal? Jesus' answer is that God is the source of his authority. And the third question, where does Jesus come from and go to? Well, God is Jesus' origin and destination. So the Lord's plan, power, and place are all wrapped up in God the Father. Now, finally, we have the last point, Jesus' offer of living water. And in this point, his question to us is, will we or will we not come? Verse 37, let's read this together. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So this next event took place on the great day, the eighth and final day of the feast. And on this day, two ceremonies are held. We have the next slide. First, the, the priest will fill a golden flask or flagon with water taken from the pool of Siloam, and they were carried into the temple. The priest on duty then pours it into a silver bowl at the altar. This water-pouring ceremony symbolizes the supernatural provision of water that the Messiah will bring. It also anticipates God's promise to pour out His Spirit on His people. On that same day, they will also light the four candlesticks in the temple treasury. And that is, likely why, that is likely when Jesus declares Himself to be the light of the world in chapter 8. So I'll leave it for next week. But it's likely at the point of the water-pouring ceremony here, that Jesus speaks about his gifts of living water flowing out from the hearts of those who believe in him. Earlier in chapter 4, Jesus had told the Samaritan woman that this living water he offers her wells up to eternal life. So it seems like there, living waters is eternal life. Now, John tells us that Jesus offers living water to this Jewish crowd and he refers to the Spirit who's given to those who believe in Jesus after his glorified, which means after his death and resurrection. Now, so is the, is the living waters referring to eternal life or the spirit? 
well, the two can easily be harmonized, since the Holy Spirit is the one who leads us into eternal life by giving us new birth from above, or what we call regeneration. Well, the Lord offers this living water, eternal life through the new birth given by the Spirit, to anyone who would acknowledge our thirst and come to Him. This water Jesus gives us then wells up, wells out from our hearts and flows out to bless others. So the question is this, will you come to Him or not? Will you recognize your thirst and come? In Isaiah 55 verse 1, which we read at the start of the service, God has invited those who thirst to come. He says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Here again, the Lord himself invites us. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So brothers and sisters, friends, do we recognize our thirst and will we come to Jesus? In a sense, this is a very simple thing to do, right? It's so easy because Jesus is offering us this living water at no cost because he has paid the cost for us by his own precious blood. But if you are like me, we try always to, to do things our own way, right? We try to repay those whom we are indebted to. We try not to be a freeloader. And so perhaps we think that God only helps those who help themselves. We think that this is a Bible verse, but I assure you, you cannot find it. Because it's not an easy thing to humbly accept that we are spiritually bankrupt, that we can't afford to pay for our own food and water, that we are solely dependent on God's grace, that we are indebted to Jesus' payments on our behalf. The truth, brothers and sisters, is this, that while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. So what could be some possible responses to Jesus' free offer to come? There continues to be divided opinions about Jesus among the Jewish authorities and people. And we see this starting from the people in verse 40. When the people heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, it's the Christ to come from Galilee. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hand on him. See, some people believe that Jesus is indeed the, the prophet or the Christ, but others wouldn't believe him due to his Galilean origin. So is your response and mine also based on a true knowledge, a full knowledge of God's word, or is it out of sheer ignorance, presumption, and misunderstanding about Jesus? How do you and I know that we know rightly about Jesus, that we are not misled or misinterpreting the facts? Well, I know some of us during COVID, we've gotten into this habit of just streaming YouTube video one after another. And some of us tend to believe everything we watch, right? So we must beware because there are lots of unhelpful information or misinformation out there. And our darkened hearts and minds are constantly looking for something to disprove Jesus 
so that we can walk away from him, so that we can live our lives our own way. So we need discernment from God. We need guidance from his word to sift out truth from error. Next, among the Jewish authorities, there were also divided opinions about Jesus. Now, earlier in, chapter, in verse 32, the Jewish leaders sent out temple officers to arrest Jesus. And here we read in verse 45 that the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of, or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. See, interestingly, having seen and heard Jesus for themselves, the temple guards are somewhat shaken. Some of them may be persuaded. But the Pharisees attribute this. They attribute this to them being deceived. Like the common people, they were accursed because they don't know the law like the Pharisees do. And they were proudly asserting that surely the Jewish leaders and the, the Pharisees, they won't be taken in so easily by Jesus. Well, to prove a point and almost on cue, John then introduces Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is the Pharisee who, and ruler who visited Jesus at night, secretly, in John chapter 3. In verse 50, this Nicodemus, the Pharisee, who had gone to him before and was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. See, once the secret seeker, Nicodemus is starting to step up to speak for Jesus as a cautious advocate. But it's only in chapter 19 that we will see him finally step out into the light as a decided disciple to anoint Jesus' body. But the other Pharisees now mocked Nicodemus. They asked, are you defending Jesus because you're also from Galilee? Now, Galilee was then despised by the Judeans. Uh, 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 any pious uh, Jew would not go there because it's, a, it's a, seen as a less uh, holy region where the Jews dwell among the Gentiles. So their claim here that no prophet arises from Galilee is actually out of their pride. It wasn't true because some Old Testament prophets like Jonah, Hosea, Nahum, and perhaps Elijah, Elisha, Amos, they really did originate from Galilee. Here in the RPC, we often pride ourselves, we call ourselves a Christ-centered and Bible-centered church. But perhaps you and I can also become arrogant in our knowledge. We can presume to know better than others. And so we can become self-appointed adjudicators of what is orthodox belief and behavior, like these Pharisees did. And that is why Pastor Chris always emphasizes that we ought to aim to be not just Christ-centered and Bible-centered, but also Christ-like. We cannot be like these Pharisees. Now, in closing, you might have heard that Zoe Gabriel, who had spoken up courageously against her critics. She was invited to star in Charles and Keith's ad campaign for International Women's Day this week, on Wednesday. Of course, whether Charles and Keith is a luxury brand or not, the, the answer remains in the air. But there mustn't be any doubt about our Lord Jesus Christ. Will we be also a courageous ambassador like Zoe Gabriel? 
and speak up for Christ too. Where we take a stand, a courageous stand for Christ in the face of the world. Jesus invites us to come to him for living water. And he says to, to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, we thank you so much that Jesus Christ came to offer us living water by his death and resurrection, and that the gift of the Holy Spirit has been given to those who believe. Please cause us to repent of our pride, our, our arrogant sin of rejecting you, our Creator, and please give us a holy hunger for Christ, our heavenly bread, and give us a spiritual thirst for his living water. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.